All right, you guys can be seated. Kids, y'all can head on back to the back. You can open up to First Peter. Open up to the book of First Peter. We're going to finish out chapter 1 this morning, uh, which we're going to cover about as many verses this morning as we've, as we've taken the last, I think, four weeks to cover uh, so far. But really, all he's making in this last half of the book of 1 Peter uh, is, uh, is, a, is a pretty strong appeal and making one point with a lot of exhortations on how to get there. And so we're going to cover all of the last half of chapter 1 of 1 Peter this morning. A couple weeks ago, we were able to put together uh, the walls for the Isaiah 117 house. I know this has been going up this week over at the, uh, the site. Um, I was there that Friday and that uh, Saturday and saw the process as it, as it all came together. Some of you guys uh, were as well. And uh, it, it was great for me to be able to be there to see the whole, the whole thing. It was great to be able to cut the boards, to lay them out uh, with all the relevant information on the boards, a pretty wild system, the way they, they had it all set up. And then on Saturday, we were able to, uh, to assemble those boards. I don't, I don't know if you guys saw it or not, but uh, Ben and Rachel had not seen it until this morning. And uh, John, where's, I don't know where John's at. There you are, over there. Uh, they, they were uh, front page news story here. Uh, yeah, so that was, that, was, that was big time, even though they had no idea. So uh, I may have to get them all to sign this before we're, uh, before we're done this morning. But it was pretty cool to see them, everybody come together, put all this stuff together, assemble uh, all, these, uh, all these boards. And it was, it was great because when it comes to that kind of stuff for me, and I know for a lot of, uh, of you guys, I generally don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I don't want to give myself, like, I, I want to give myself a little bit of credit. The longer I've owned a home, the more I've been, kind of been forced to be a little bit more handy than I used to be and uh, been able to do some things where I'm like, hey, that was pretty good. I'm glad that, I'm glad that I did that. But, but in all honesty, it's not, uh, it, it's not my thing. I'm not real great at it. Generally, whenever I do stuff, it takes twice as long and looks half as good uh, as what I'd like with about four to five trips to Lowe's for every project that uh, or, or leaper for every project that I that I end up doing, but uh, it, it's just not really my uh, m- my thing. And at, uh, at one point on Friday, Justin saw me. Uh, who, who, for y'all that don't know Justin, Justin's kind of the the contractor running uh, the the whole project right now for Isaiah one seventeen, uh, and clearly knows what he's doing. He saw me do something very basic, like carry a couple of boards from one place to another place. And he said, hey, I've got a job on a construction crew if you would like to work. And I told him, I don't know how much workers' comp insurance you've got, but it's not enough to put me on that crew. I promise you. Um, it's just, uh, it, it wouldn't justify hiring me. You know, the weekend prior, I found myself during the, uh, uh, while the ladies were away at the women's retreat, I found myself with a sawzall uh, cutting out a shower on an, un, uh, an impromptu, unexpected uh, shower remodel. And so I had to, to gut the shower out. I had to uh, do some plumbing at one point, as inevitably would happen. 
Uh, I'm screaming for Isaiah to, to, to come and help because I'm getting soaked with water on my face and water squir- squirting everywhere and trying to figure out, do I explain to him how to get downstairs to where the water cutoff is or do I make him take this and get squirted in the face while I run downstairs to get to where the water cutoff is? Uh, that, that was kind of how the whole thing went, but eventually I got it all out. It was completely gutted. Everything was gone. It looked... Uh, it, it, it was what it needed to be uh, to get the demo done. But uh, then I called my dad and I was like, okay, I've gotten this far, but I really need some help past this point because I can't get further than this on my, uh, on my own. And at each point in those two weekends, so with Isaiah 117 and with, uh, with the shower remodel, I found myself in the same place. I had the materials I had done the, the, the legwork, the prep work was done, uh, but the work of, of creating something, of installing a, a, a shower or building a wall still had to be done. And as I stood there looking at a, at a deconstructed shower well, as I stood there uh, looking at a bunch of two-by-fours on Friday afternoon and Saturday morning, I found myself asking the question, now what? Now what am I supposed to do? I've gotten this far, I have the materials, but... Now what? What do I do from here? What comes next? I mean, I think I have a general idea of what it looks like and where I'm headed, but I don't really know how to get from point A to point B. I don't really know how to get there. So I'm asking the question, now what? Prep work's done, materials are there, but then what follows that? This morning, I think that's exactly where we find ourselves in our text of 1 Peter. Peter has laid out all the details. He's laid out all the theology for us. We've spent the last few weeks doing some pretty heady theology, talking about some pretty deep things. And we find ourselves this morning uh, kind of looking at the materials, uh, if you will, all laid out, ready to assemble something, but we briefly kind of reset ourselves and we say, Now what? Okay, Peter, you've talked about election and you've talked about grace and you've talked about uh, sanctification. You talked about all these things, but now what? So let's let's just reset and kind of kind of relay out the materials real real quick. We'll do this. We'll do this real quick. He starts opening verses, calling the opening verses in in First Peter chapter one, calling us elect exiles. This sets us up to understand uh, our place in this world and who we are. Sets us up to understand something about our place and who we are. We are elect, chosen by God as a result of His grace. He chose us. He didn't wait for us to come to Him, but instead He came to us. So we are elect and we are exiles. This world is not our home. We should not seek to make it our home. We should function as though we have our citizenship and another place all together. So Peter starts laying all this stuff out, and what he begins to show us is, A, who we are, and B, what our place is here. But what else does he tell us? He tells us whose we are. He says that our election and our hope amidst exile is secured through the blood of Christ. So who we are, what our place is, who we belong to, because it's through the blood of Christ, and then he tells us what is ahead of us. That's the four things that he lays out for us. He says that even though we are exiles, this is a temporary exile. It is not forever. 
Because of the grace of God, there is a time when we will be back home and we will not deal with the, the, the brokenness of this world and we will, not deal, we will not consider ourselves exiled, but we will finally be home, which is where we get the name of this series, Not Home Yet. We are waiting, we are dealing with persecution, we are dealing with sin and brokenness in this world, but we are headed somewhere. And that somewhere will be our home. It won't always be this way because Jesus has secured for us an inheritance that is, it says, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Nothing can touch what Jesus has secured for us. In fact, the worst things we will face on this earth, Peter tells us, the suffering and the afflictions that we have, the suffering and the pain doesn't rob us of our inheritance because uh, In fact, in some ways, it only prepares our heart to be in a better place to accept that future inheritance. So this is what what Peter is doing. He's, He's laying out these details about who we are, who we belong to, where we're going, what our place is. And then he says, and all of the things that you endure in this world only help to underscore all of those things. So don't think that God is not with you because you're suffering, but instead realize that is evidence that he is working for you and in you. And Peter concludes this section with this doxology of praise that we looked at uh, last week, that that the, the prophets foresaw these things coming, maybe incompletely, but they did see these things coming, and that the angels longed to look into these things. They longed to know salvation better. That's what's been assembled for us so far. That's what Peter has laid out for us. He's put those materials out there. Who we are, what our place is, who we belong to, where we're going, and how even to process the bad things that happen to us along the way. He's laid those out in the first 12 verses of some of the most comprehensive teaching in all of the Bible about what it means to be a Christian. And some of the clearest teachings about how the Trinity works in all of that. And so much like me standing before a dozen two-by-fours and saying, now what do I do? The question comes for us as we look at this with 1 Peter, now what? All right, Peter, I get, I've, I've got the theology. I get what you've laid out for us. Now what? Where do we go from here? I'm going to read the whole second part of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 now and first couple of verses of the second chapter. I'm going to read this whole thing. This is Peter's answer to the question, now what? <clears throat> he says, therefore, this is verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's, each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He goes on, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth of your sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 
since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all the glory, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. All right, so that's the, that's the section here. This is the section where, where Peter answers the question, now what? Here's what you do with all these things that I have laid out for you. He shifts gears a, a, a little bit. He, he's going to start giving us a few things to do in, uh, in light of this theological groundwork that he has laid. He's going to start building the house for us. And he shows how all of this theology begins to play itself out in our lives. Here's, here, in our lives. Here's the thing about theology. If we talk about theology in a way that is so completely abstract as though it is this uh, kind of academic thought exercise that has to do with things out there but never has an impact then on us, we are doing theology in a way that is completely foreign to how the New Testament writers talk about theology. Now, it's fine to be able to talk about, uh, you know, the attributes of God. We spent almost a whole year talking about the attributes of God. It is fine for us to be able to, to talk about theology and all of those things. Those things are good for us to debate, to debate and to, uh, to work through. But in the end, each of those things has to then come to bear on our lives in some way. We have to be able to say, this is who we are because of this theology. Not just simply say, here's some theology, go debate it and talk about it. It has to come to bear on our lives. And this is what he says in verse 13. He marks the transition. He says, therefore, therefore. So he's saying, here's all this theology. Now, therefore. That means he's going to connect everything he's just said with everything he's about to say. In fact, the first 12 verses in 1 Peter in the original language in the Greek is really just one big long sentence. It's one big uh, unified thought in Peter's mind. And this is not a bunch of like chopped up things. It's all one big thought for him. And so he's going to say, hey, here's this big chunk of thinking that I had, this big run-on sentence that puts all of this together. Here it is, and now I'm going to connect it with everything that's about to follow after that. He says, in, all, in, in light of all that I just said, here's what it means for you. Now, Peter says a lot here in these verses, and it can be easy for us to kind of get lost in the, in the trees and not see the forest here. But I think if we kind of look at what Peter is doing here, I think we'll see that he's really just got one message that he wants us to understand. He's going to tell us that all this theology about election and the role that God plays in sanctifying us, all of this has one big implication. What is the implication that it has for us? What is the implication all this theology has? First, in verse 13, he says that you should prepare your minds for what we're talking about here. You should, you should focus in. You should dial in. This is not something that just comes to you naturally. This is something you have to work through. Be sober-minded, and then you have to set your hope on the grace given to us in Jesus. All of those things are important for us this morning. The reality is that many times our minds are, are the last things to be engaged when it comes to our relationship with Christ. Our, 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 our minds are the last thing for us to, uh, to put in there. 
And the reality is that, that, that we, we, we set our minds on so many other things, and hope is something that, frankly, we just hope to feel. But that's not how Peter talks about those things. That's not how Peter sees our faith working. For him to know these things about God and what he's done should produce in us a, a level of seriousness and mental focus that requires some effort. Now, this doesn't mean, when I say seriousness, this doesn't mean that every time we have to show up at church, we should have on our choir robes and we should come in all somber and all should be quiet and we should do things in this very solemn manner. But it does mean that what we are talking about here matters. We are not just gathering here to have a, a, a spiritual pep talk. We're not just gathering here uh, to give yourself a pat on the back and send you out and hope it gets you through the week. That is not what we are doing. And that's not what you are to do whenever you study your, your Bible. What Peter is saying is there's a seriousness, there is a realness to what it is that we are doing whenever we study the Scripture, and we should treat it as so. You don't just wake up in the mornings and feel God around you. There is a mental discipline to living and knowing God's grace. Yes, God gives that grace, but so many Christians, so many Christians have been partakers of that grace, but frankly, they know almost nothing about it because they don't take the time to stop and consider what God has done. They don't take the time to stop and do what Peter has done in these opening verses. And so how about you? How much time do you take in preparing your mind and setting your mind to the task of understanding the salvation that you've been given in Christ? Or have you just punched your ticket and said, I'll see you when I see you, Jesus? That is not our salvation. And you miss out on tremendous joy whenever you live life like that. How much time do you take to focus your heart and your mind on what God has done? Furthermore, Peter tells us to set our hope on the grace of God. I think that is an interesting phrase, to set our hope. I wish I could spend the morning on that one phrase. I, I almost did that, but for the sake of uh, trying to lay out this sermon series, I decided that I would not, but I wish I could but I want you to walk out of here and remember this point, maybe above all others, maybe not, but certainly up there. Hope doesn't just materialize out of thin air. Hope doesn't just kind of randomly pop up. Hope is not the morning dew that you just walk outside and suddenly it's there. Hope is an active action on our part and it is built upon believing and living out the promises of God. That is how we gain hope. We do not hope for hope. That is not how that works. Peter tells us that we are to set our hope. That is an, that is an active verb. That is something that we do. We are to set our hope. I wonder how many of you guys set your hope. Or how many of you guys treat hope as one of those things like, I just hope I feel that today. I just, I just hope hope is there. I hope when I wake up this morning that I can, I can just make it through the day and that I feel good today. And you just hope. You hope in hope. I think that's how most of us do that. 
And I want to push back on that some. Don't get me wrong. There's certainly a place for us trying to figure out how do I get through this stuff I'm dealing with. But when Peter talks about hope, he's not talking about something in the abstract or a feeling that we can't control. When he talks about hope, he's talking about something we pursue. He's talking about something we actively go after. We don't sit back and wait for it to come to us, but we pursue it. We set our hope. And I want to challenge you this morning. I want to to lay that out for you this morning. How often do you do that? How active are you in pursuing hope in your own life? Versus how much do you just kind of sit back and, and just just kind of wait on a feeling to kind of fill you up? Or do you wake up and you say, all right, I need hope this morning, so I'm going to go and seek it out. I'm going to seek it out in the person of Christ. I'm going to seek it out in the sanctification of the Spirit. I'm going to seek it out in what God is doing. I'm going to look at His promises. I'm going to look at how He was faithful. I'm going to look at what he's called us to, and I'm going to look at how I am to respond to that. I'm going to set my hope on these things that Peter has laid out. I'm going to actively seek that type of joy and that type of hope. Not just hope that it shows up. And from there, Peter is going to tell you, this is how you set your hope. He gives us two pretty clear commands, past and future. This is verse 14. He says, don't be conformed to your former actions. Don't be conformed to your former actions, so that's past. And going, going forward, you are to be holy because that is who God is. So the hinge of chapter 1 is right here in these couple of verses. The hinge of the theology he's been given is all right here, kind of holds the passage together. What's on each side is a consistent message from Peter, though. I want you to listen to how he goes back and forth multiple times here. He lays out the theology to to, to open the book. He looks to make a, a shift here in these verses by calling us to do something. He tells us that we are to act different than we used to and that we are to be something different than we have ever been, that we are to be holy. That we are to be holy. Now, that call should kind of get your attention a little bit. Because Scripture is clear, the only person that is holy is God Himself. So then, how how can we receive that call to to be holy? It should kind of make you step back and say, hang on just a minute. I thought that was reserved for God and God alone. And certainly, the holiness of God is a category that we cannot obtain in the sense that we can be like God. But according to Peter, it is a a pursuit that we should all be on as Christians. Now what can happen is you can take this this command kind of in its abstract, right? You can take these two commands and you can say, uh, don't be like you used to be and pursue God and be holy how God is holy. So take that, remove it from its context. Remove it from what Peter has told us so far, and that can become, and I, and I would say probably for the vast majority of us in here, that can become 
our, the, the definition of the Christian faith. For a lot of us in here, that is church for us growing up. For a lot of us in here, that is our relationship uh, with Jesus, is our kind of white-knuckled attempt to do all we can to be holy, to be moral, to be good people, to do what is right. And the, 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 uh, the, the majority of our walk with Christ and our walk in the Christian faith has been this kind of bludgeoning of be a better person. You've got to be better. Because if you're not better, you've got a problem. Be better. Be better. Be better. I mean, Peter even says that if we keep on going, he says, don't neglect the fear of God either. He says, don't misunderstand. I've told you all this stuff, but... Don't neglect the fear of God. Look in verse 17. He says, And if you call him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Peter even makes the point, if you're going to call on God, if you're going to invoke his name, if you're going to claim him and you're going to call out to him, understand what comes with that. He is a judge. And he will judge you accordingly. Do not misunderstand. Yes, He has called you. Yes, you are elect. But don't think that just because you've called Him Father that you've somehow gotten out of this command and this call to be something different. So how does this all kind of line up with everything else that He said? I mean, we've kind of got these warring things going on here. And this tension is a tension that's created all kinds of conflict within the Christian faith throughout, for, for thousands of years. God's grace versus our works. And that's how the dichotomy is set up. Well, which one is it? Is God gracious or do we work to be holy? Which one is it? Is God done great things for us and given us a great salvation? Or are we to forsake past things and make ourselves holy? Which one is it? Seems like Peter tells us to do both. And here's the thing. He does tell us to do both, but... You, you, can't, you can't rip it from its context. You have to hear how Peter says this and the conditions that he sets upon all of it. He's telling us that if we are going to call God as Father, we would do well not to neglect the lives we are living and the holiness that we are called to. So how does it all work? And I love how Peter does this. It's such a great way to understand how salvation works, how our sanctification works. And it's so backward to how our mind works. But it's all over the Bible. It's backward because for us, we always set these things in opposition. Grace versus works. We set them in opposition. But the Bible doesn't do that. And people are afraid to preach grace at the level that Peter has preached it because what they, what they, what they will say is if, if you preach grace that God is, is the one that does it all, then what motivation is left for us to do good works in the first place? Why would we, why would we do good works at all? And so this is, this is the question. This is what's put out there. Why live a good, moral, holy life if you're going to say God's grace is what does it all. We understand this, right? We, we, we understand this. Just if, if you're a parent, you, you get this. The carrot and the stick, right? 
You're not going to expect, no parent's going to feel comfortable telling their kid, you know what, son, I love you. You're good, you're you're, you're a good kid. I really, I really love you. And can, can you just, I, I just want to throw this out there. I'm going to love you no matter what. And I'm always going to love you. And I don't care what you do at all. And if that's how you throw it out there and that's how you frame it, we're not going to expect to come back behind there and be like, his room's clean all by itself all the time, Right? You're going to expect, you're going to know you've got to put some measure of discipline around him in order for the room to get cleaned. We, we don't parent that way. Now hang with me, hang with me here because we're, we're going someplace. It can be confusing for us because if parenting doesn't work like that, all grace and then just expect that the kid is perfectly obedient to follow that up. If parenting doesn't work that way, how, how can we expect that that's how God works? It can be very confusing, but Peter is clear. We have been called to be holy just as God is holy. So that means we can't dismiss calling people to obedience. So, so, so hear what I'm saying here. We cannot dismiss full grace and we cannot dismiss full obedience and a call to holiness. We cannot dismiss either one of those. But Peter is very clear about why that is how it works. And it just works differently in how God works with us than even how we would parent. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. I'll read this again. He says, knowing that you were ransomed. That is a that is a very important phrase there. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal, feudal ways and inherited, uh, you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but it was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So for Peter... So, so that little section follows. Let, let, me just, let me just go back and rebuild this for you, right? So 13 through 17 is Peter saying, do these things. Be sober-minded. Set your hope in God. Be holy. Don't neglect the fear of God. And then what follows that is this 18 through 21. So for Peter, holy living flows straight from the cross straight from the cross and not straight from the cross in like a Jesus did this for you now you should do this for him but instead this is how Peter understands this to work what is the motivation for holy living to Peter he says be holy as I am holy be holy like God is holy and he says this what is the motivation knowing that you were ransomed and then he spends three verses describing how that happened, talking about the cross. You do not pursue holiness in order to be saved. It is not so that God will be pleased with you. It is not so that you can prove your worth. It is not so you can earn anything. In fact, the true motivation comes from the fact that none of those things are true. That we cannot earn. That we cannot 
we, we, we cannot prove our worth. We cannot pursue holiness apart from the redeeming work of God. It's not so that we can earn anything. It's precisely because we don't have to prove anything and we don't have to earn anything that we pursue God's holiness. It's exactly because we don't have to earn God's favor that we pursue his call. You see, in a typical relationship, we tend to sit, uh, we, we tend to sit grace uh, and obedience on a, on a seesaw. The, the grace goes up, obedience goes down. That's the way that we assume this works, right? The more grace you show, the less obedience follows. When obedience goes up, then grace just becomes much less important. Why is that? Because if you're obedient, you don't, you don't need the grace anymore. At least it's, it's how we think that it works. We sit those two uh, in juxtaposition against one another. But God takes grace and obedience and he takes them off the seesaw. And he puts max value on both of them, right? So he takes them all off the seesaw. So it's not one or the other. It's like, let's get off of this, quit looking at it this way, and maximize the value of both. Grace is absolutely maxed out as, as full as it can be. And as a result, unfettered obedience is the expectation. As Paul says, you are bought with a price. You are not your own. Peter will drive this home over the next few verses. Let's look at this whole section. Let's go back to the very beginning and list the commands that we were given. All right, here they are. He says, prepare your minds, be sober-minded, set your hope. Now, this is after 12 verses, no commands. Now, here in these verses, he gives us all these commands. Prepare your minds, be sober-minded, set your hope, do not be conformed, be holy, conduct yourselves with fear, love one another, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. That's all the commands he crams in these verses after not one in the first 12. But if you go through and you look at each one of those, I'll challenge you to do that. Maybe this afternoon, maybe this week, uh, whenever you're studying Scripture, maybe you talk about this in your discipleship groups. Every one of these, if you go back and look at them all, they are each one set in the reality of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the grace we have received from that. Every one of them. Every one of them are surrounded by what Christ has done for us. The command to follow and to be holy is never given apart from the grace of God, ever. Every time that we receive a command in Scripture, it is our status in Christ and what He has done for us that precedes it or immediately surrounds it, explaining how we are to pursue that, that command. That is how God works. Max obedience, fully surrounded by maximum grace. We do not follow God's commands to make ourselves more beautiful to God. We follow his commands because he becomes beautiful to us. That is the Christian faith. That is the Christian faith. When we understand what Christ has done, when we understand the grace we have been given, what flows from that is full obedience to God. When we understand that, appreciate it, and it becomes beautiful to us, what follows from that should be our obedience. That is Peter's point. Not only that, part of living as exiles that 
Peter has talked about this, part of what he says again there in verse 17 and 18, part of living as exiles is that we value different things in the culture that is around us. Peter tells us that we should, we should, we should value the redemption we have more than silver and gold. So for Peter, something more valuable than silver and gold, something more motivating than silver and gold and financial security is the grace of God. And then we have Peter's somewhat ominous conclusion to this passage here in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, Like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter gives us a picture of what this Christian life should look like as we follow God. He says that if we have truly drank of the grace of God, then our response would be a continued longing to drink that grace. Now don't misunderstand, misunderstand don't kind of mix your metaphors here, because there's other places where, where we're told that you're still drinking like milk, you should be craving uh, more substantive things. This is not what Peter's getting out here. He's talking about the... the the deep hunger that a newborn has to eat and how that just controls everything about them. They will cry, they will do everything in order to satisfy that hunger. Their entire world will be built around satisfying that hunger. Peter says that is what the Christian life should look like. That if we've drank deeply of the grace of God, it should create an even deeper longing to drink more of that grace. It's something that once we've tasted it, we can't help but want more and more and more of it. We crave it. We need it. And why? This goes back to what I said at the very beginning, because that's where we find our hope. This is how you set your hope. Not by saying, I hope that this will be a better day for me. Not by saying, God, give me hope. Let me feel better about the day. But instead, we drink deeply of the grace of God and we set our hope on that grace and we say, God, I need you to show up today and I desperately want to follow what you have given me to do. I want to be holy as you are holy. But in order for that to happen, I need to drink deeply of the grace that you have given me. I must set my hope there. And then Peter offers this almost off-handed comment. He says, if you've even actually tasted it in the first place. He says this because he's seen guys. He's walked with guys that he thought they got it. But they didn't. He says this because he's the guy that he thought he got it but he didn't. Read through the Gospels. Look at all the times that Peter's been like, oh, I get it now, I understand. And he's missed it. I keep referencing this, but I think it's a, it's a beautiful passage where Jesus goes to wash Peter's feet. And Peter says, no, 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 don't do that. You shouldn't be that. You're not my servant. And then uh, Jesus says, this is how it's supposed to happen. That's how it's supposed to be. And then Peter says, oh, okay, I get it. Well, then just not my feet. Wash all of me. He says, I get it now. I understand. I, I, I get it. And just a few hours later, he, would have tur- he turned his back on Jesus as he heads to the cross. 
Peter then meets Jesus on the beach after the resurrection. Jesus restores him, shows him grace. It, it, is, it is one of the most visible pictures at the end of the book of John. I reference this all the time because it's my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. It is one of the most beautiful passages, but it is almost a visible picture of Peter drinking down that grace. And from that moment on, Peter has tasted it. He's not just heard about it. He's not just kind of abstractly thought about it. He's not just tried to be, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of brown nose to the teacher where he says, all right, I've got the right answer. He's not concerned with just trying to get it all right. He has now drank deeply from the grace of God. And then you find all through the book of Acts how Peter pursues and works out of that. Now you hear it in his words here. Peter says, you can think you have all the right answers, but you've never drank deeply from the grace of God. And if that's the case, you'll never know how to be holy. You'll never know how to be obedient. Sanctification will not follow because it'd just be filthy rags before God as you try to do what, is, what you think is right. But instead, his encouragement is find hope, set your hope in God. And how do you do that? You drink deeply of grace. For Peter, whenever he sees people walk away or whenever he sees people go through the same thing that he went through, it is not because God has failed them, but instead because they have never truly tasted the grace of God in their lives. Friends, we cannot separate the calling of God to salvation from the calling of God after salvation. The two go hand in hand our justification, and our sanctification. They go hand in hand, and they are all the grace of God. The two go together. Make no mistake about it, God's grace, uh, God's grace in our justification is our, home, our only hope. But that's true of our sanctification as well. The Christian life is never a straight line like, like we want it to be. Peter's exhortation here is one that we will, no matter how much we attempt to follow it, no matter how much we ask God to make us holy this, this side of heaven, we, are, we, will, we will never fully make it to that place. But there should be a marked time when you can say that you aren't what you used to be and that God is making you something different. Again, you aren't getting yourself one inch closer to heaven as you are conformed to what Christ has called you to be. You're simply reflecting the new nature that you have been given as you respond to the beauty and the grace of Jesus. It doesn't get you an inch closer to heaven. But it's the natural response whenever you understand grace. That is the Christian life, if indeed you have tasted grace, as Peter says. So that's my only question for you this morning as we end. I'm sure there's plenty of applications you can draw for your own life. I'll let the Holy Spirit do that work in your own life and trust that you will ask the Spirit to work in that way. 
But my question for you is, have you ever tasted that grace? Or are you like Peter, just thinking you got all the right answers? Or are you like Peter, just trying to say, look at me, I got it right, I'm doing the right thing. And really all you're trying to do is put on a show for God, and God is not fooled. He's telling you this morning, you need that grace. You want to find hope? That's where you will find it. You want to be obedient? You want to pursue Christ? You want that to be a true part of who you are? Then Peter says, amen, absolutely. That's found in the grace of God on the cross of Je- in the cross of Jesus. We don't minimize either one. We maximize grace. We maximize obedience. Because the two go hand in hand with one another. So have you tasted that grace? I'm going to pray for us. We're going to wrap up. Band's going to come up. And we're going to sing. I'll be available in the back if you'd like to pray, if you'd like to talk. Be happy to talk to you afterwards this morning. Don't leave here this morning if you're wondering, like, I don't know what that tastes like. I don't know that I've ever had it. I've always just tried to be right my whole life. I've always just tried to be good my whole life. There's a lot of people that Satan has deceived their whole life because they think they're good. That they don't need that grace. Peter says that's the lifeblood of every Christian. So have you tasted that grace? Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, I I pray for each of us in this room that that we would not be deceived, that we would not talk ourselves into this idea that perhaps we are good enough or perhaps we, 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 we we just need a little bit of grace. But Father, we would understand how deeply we need to drink of that well. Father, we thank you that we did not have to dig that well in order to get to that place, but instead you freely give it to us. Father, I do pray that each of us in here would be holy as you are holy. And that we would find the grace to do that at the cross. Father, help us to never minimize the call to obedience in the name of grace. But instead, the beauty of that grace would drive us to obedience. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.